Good morning, church. I want to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to find a little book of 1 Peter in your Bible, or you can use um, whatever device you might use for your Bible, uh, iPad or iPhone. Do we have pew Bibles out there? You can grab one of those. Look on with somebody else. 1 Peter is where we want to be. We're in a second of a series of studies for the month of June and July on this little book. And if you're a person who right now in your life, you're experiencing really a tough time. And it seems that it's coming one after another after another. I talked to someone between services, and that is what they're experiencing. Just one thing after another after another. I want you to know that First Peter was written with you in mind. That he wrote this book for people who are experiencing trouble. And if you're not experiencing trouble now, you will eventually, because it's the nature of the world that we live in, or someone dear to you will be experiencing trouble. So I want to encourage you to be very open to what God is saying to you today. The title of this morning's message is Living with the End in Mind. You know, Hollywood, if you haven't noticed, has a real fascination with the end of the world. You ever noticed? They love apocalyptic storylines and dark, scary, end-of-the-world scenarios. Whether it's zombies or things falling out of the sky, they are fascinated by that, and they always picture it as something to be afraid of. And there's a sense in which the Bible would agree that the end of the world is something for some people they should be afraid of. But for us who know Christ, the end of the world is something we should love and we should look forward to. In fact, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself on behalf of us uh, for our sins, it says in Galatians 1.4, who delivered us from this present evil age. It's this world now that we ought to be concerned about, the one we live in now, and not what's coming at the end of the age. So for the Christian, we have a totally different perspective about the end of all things, and it's one that we desperately need when we're in trouble. So I want us to begin today, we're looking at 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 25, passage of Scripture that Jason and Christy read so well for us. We're going to begin reading verse 13. I want to begin this way. When everything in my life is falling apart, as a Christian, I can thrive by, number one, you can still thrive, number one, by looking forward to the moment when I will see him and he will rejoice over me. Verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace of that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Immediately, he says, you've got to do something with your mind. If you're a person that's being persecuted, worst possible scenario that you can imagine, the first place to begin to deal with that as a Christian is in your mind. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that's an ancient expression, but you might be familiar with what it means. If you wore a robe like they did in ancient times and you started running, what was going to happen? You weren't going to go very fast, or you were going down, because your feet would get all tangled up in the robes, right? And so to, to run, you had to hike that robe up, and tie it off with some kind of rope or your belt, and then you could run. Then, then there was action, activity. And he says, I want you to do that with your mind. I want you to be energetic in your thinking. And then he says, be sober, the opposite of being drunk. And so not only are we to be energetic with our mind and our thinking, we should be clear in our thinking. 
He says, do this with your mind and then rest your hope. And that word hope describes your ultimate longing. Now, for some of us, your hope, what you're really looking forward to, changes from day to day. But for the Christian, he says to take all that you are longing for, everything that gets you up every day, whatever motivates you, take all of that longing, that hope, and put it in one place. And he uses the word rest to describe that action of putting your hope somewhere. And it's like, I'm not a betting man, but if I was betting on a horse to win, I would bet all of my resources on that horse. I would put my bet on the horse. He says, rest all of your hope on one thing. And what is that one thing? When the text, it's the word grace. Rest your hope fully on the grace. And he says a couple things about that grace. He says it's a grace that's going to be brought to you. You don't have it yet, this particular grace. It's going to be brought to you. When is it going to be brought to you? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's referring to his return. When he comes back, when you see him face to face, and he sees you. He says, set your hope fully on the grace and, and what he's saying is that Jesus has this grace with him, and when he meets you, when you meet him face to face at the end of time, he brings this grace for you. He says, set your hope fully on that grace. Now, what is that grace? What is it? Well, Peter actually used this language in verse 7, and, and I've I'm, I'm got it ready for you here. Back in verse 7, he says that the genuineness of your faith, remember we talked about last week, the truth about your troubles that... We want to get out of it, and God, often when you're in it, is doing something to build your faith. He said that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, your faith may be found, to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you have the picture of Jesus coming at the end of time, his return, he's bringing with him something called a grace, and you want to set your hope fully on that. In verse 7, he gives us at least one aspect of this grace. One aspect of it is the praise and honor and glory that Jesus gives to you because of the faith that you maintain throughout your life. And so because you trusted him, he comes. Are we going to praise him when he comes? Sure. Are we going to give honor and glory to him when he comes? Absolutely, through eternity. But do you realize that there's a praise and an honor and a glory he's going to give to you when you have trusted him? And so the moment you see him, he looks at you, he lights up, he says, well done, my son, well done, my daughter. And that grace, that moment is what Peter says, put all your longing there. Put all of your hope there. This week on the TV, they had the NCAA finals in track and field. I just saw a little bit the final races, and Arkansas did pretty good. They won the tournament, NCAA, whole nation. They won. I don't talk about Razorbacks very often, but they did great. And, uh, and they, had, they had a race that I was familiar with. They're the 400 meter. I ran the quarter mile about 20 feet difference, 20 foot difference between the 400 meter and the 440 yard uh, quarter mile. 
and they run that race. And when you're running that race, it's important to do a couple things really well. One is to finish strong. Because when you're running just one lap around the track, you think it shouldn't be any big deal, but you're running all out. And somewhere around the, the second turn, you're running with all your might. And, and if you've never experienced this, I don't recommend it. But you're running with all your might, and the, what happens is your heart thinks it's dying. And so it starts pulling resources away from your legs, and your blood is leaving your legs. It pulls the blood away from your arms. It pulls the blood away from your brain, and it says, I'm keeping all the blood around the heart that I can, and you feel like you're running with lead bricks, you know? And you got to keep running. Why? Because when it's hardest, you see the finish line, and because you can see the finish line, you finish strong. That's why around the world, if you ask people in persecuted countries their favorite New Testament book, they're going to tell you First Peter because it describes where they live. Difficulty, hardship, running. you got to keep your eye on finishing strong. But there's something else that happens in this deal. You have to know where the finish line is. And the finish line to your life is not retirement. The finish line to your life is not reaching a certain level of success or a certain level of recognition or a certain level of power or authority. That is not the finish line. The finish line is past that. The finish line is at the end when you meet Christ and he brings with him this grace because you trusted him all the way to the end and you knew where the finish line was. Imagine lining up for a race, they fire the starter pistol and everybody runs different directions. And you'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 guys, the, start, the finish line's over there. And they all run different directions. I ran a cross-country meet one time, and I met somebody coming the other way. They didn't know where the finish line was. Out in the woods, running around in circles, which way do we go? It's a little easier on a track. But when you don't know where the finish line is, it can be pretty confusing. A lot of Christians don't know where the finish line is. The finish line is that moment when you see Jesus. That's your finish line. And if the wheels are coming off your life and everything is going wrong, that's the moment. That's what you're looking for. That's where you want to finish. Now, what does it mean to rest your hope fully on the grace? Here's the second thing. When everything in my life is falling apart, as a Christian, I can thrive by, number two, refusing to be controlled by my old inner wants and desires. He says in verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, as obedient children. Immediately, he says, how do you rest your hope fully on this grace that's coming? He says, you do it by being an obedient child. Immediately, he's calling attention to the relationship between you and the Father because he describes you as a child. Now, what's the distinction between an obedient child and a disobedient child? Well, the obedient child has taken their will They've taken their desires and they have put them or submitted them under the will and the desire of the Father. That's the nature of obedience, doing the will of someone else. And he says, like, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. Now, these former lusts, he's referencing for a Christian the time before they were a Christian. And these, everything you were about before you came into Christ was about you 
What do I want to do? What do I want to be? What would please me? And the thing that the Bible teaches about that is that that is called the flesh. Paul would call it the flesh. When you become a Christian, you still got to deal with those old desires. And he says, if you let them, they will conform you. They they will press you into a certain way of thinking and a certain way of acting. And it's deadly to your spirituality as a Christian. He says, don't let it do that. Be an obedient child. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul writes that you put off concerning your former conduct, your former way of life, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And so the lust, these desires for non-Christian, they deceive them, and the consequence of it is they grow corrupt. Their soul is corrupt. Their heart is corrupt. And you say, what is corrupt? Corrupt is what happens when my wife would be gone for a couple of weeks, and she comes home and opens the refrigerator after I've been in charge. Because in there, there's stuff growing. There's stuff that's shriveled up. There's stuff that wasn't covered properly, and it's corrupt. That's what the word means, shriveled up, dried up, no longer any good, ruined. And he says that if you live according to your desires, just what I, constantly these selfish desires, it's about me, it corrupts your soul. He goes on and says these same desires war against your soul. In chapter 2, verse 11 that we're going to get to later, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Those same desires actually want to keep your soul from being made whole and healthy and everything God intended it to be in Christ. God made you for himself. These desires will take you away from that. So Peter's saying, don't let your desires be the controlling force in your life. Now, obedient children know who their father is. He says, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, when you didn't know the father, but now you know the father. So there's a, a third thing. When everything in my life is falling apart, as a Christian, I can thrive by, number three, listening to please him and not me. This is the second part of the activity. If I'm not supposed to live according to my selfish desires, what do I do? Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Well, there's two ways to take that phrase. One means to live like him, to be like him, be holy as I am holy. And that's certainly a meaning there. I should be like him. That's a true statement. To be holy is to try to be like him, to let his life live through me so that I can bring attention to him and glorify him, to be like him. But it also means to be for him, available for him. You see, the root idea of the word holy is to be set apart for a specific use. In the temple, there were certain tools, tables, um, items, dishes, and so forth that were dedicated to the Lord. They were holy to the Lord, set apart for his use. So there's one sense of the word holy that means to be like him. The other means to be available to him. Which sense is being used here? I believe it's the second one. Because the first part of it says, he says, don't live for yourself. Don't be conformed to your former desires. Instead of doing what you want, be holy. What does that mean? Be about what he wants. Peter says, don't live this way. Don't conform. 
The Lord Jesus taught us to seek first the kingdom of God, His rule. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let me paraphrase that. Seek what the Lord wants, He'll take care of what you want. Seek the Lord's wants, He'll take care of your want. But not if you reverse it. God, take care of me. Pay attention to me. God, don't you care about me? Uh, my friend Jerry White, who was here with us in meetings a year ago, on his blog this week, he wrote this statement, and I'm quoting, Faith pleases God. Good feelings please me. That raises a question. Do I want to please and honor him, or do I want him to bless and please me? You say, well, Don, that seems fanatical. You mean I'm not supposed to worry about what I want? I'm just supposed to be about what he wants? That seems fanatical, and yet what does Peter say? He says, be holy in your conduct, and how much of your conduct? A little bit of your conduct? What does it say in the text? Be holy in some of your conduct? Part of your conduct? No, he says, all your conduct. When you get up, Lord, what do you want me to do today? You're at work. God, how can I serve you in the workplace? You're, you're eating lunch. God, how can I bless this person in this conversation? You get home. It's not, what am I going to do tonight? It's, God, what do you want me to do tonight? This weekend, it's not about, what am I going to do this weekend for me? What can we do? How can we have fun and so forth? No, God, how can, I, how can I please you this weekend? Peter says, don't be conformed into a life where it's always about what do you want to do next, where it's all about you. And when you're in trouble, if you've made it a habit to seek what pleases the Lord in your life, you've got a real advantage because then you turn to the Lord and you say the same thing that you say every day. God, how can I please you in this circumstance? God, how can I respond in this circumstance. Thirdly, when everything in my life is falling apart, as a Christian I can thrive, excuse me, that's number four, walking in awe of what he has done every day. When my life is falling apart, I can still thrive by walking in awe of what he has done every day. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The core of that sentence, the, the main verb is conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in fear. Now, immediately that raises a question. I'm supposed to, throughout the rest of my life, I'm supposed to live, conduct myself in fear. Fear of what? Fear of what? Fear of death? In Hebrews 2.15, it says that Jesus died to deliver us, to deliver men, people, who all their lives were afraid of death. Am I supposed to be afraid of people? Well, no. Galatians 1.10, we... One of my favorite verses, the Apostle Paul says, if I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so, no, he's not afraid of any man. Is it the future? Nothing can separate us from the 
the love of Christ. In Romans 8, 38, he says, neither things present nor things to come. So I'm not even supposed to be afraid of the future. What about the Father? Should I be afraid of the Father? It says he's the one who judges impartially. And yet, Peter's the one that told us he chose us. He, he has an inheritance that he's keeping for us, and he's keeping us for that inheritance. I don't need to be afraid of the Father. He loves me. Am I to be afraid of Jesus? Well, this passage says he redeemed me. He set me free. He set me free from all the stuff that's been handed down to me by my forefathers. You know, some of us think it's inevitable. I can't change because I'm just like my dad. Can't be different because I'm just like my mom. And yet Jesus redeemed you from all of the aimless conduct, he says, of your forefathers. I'm not supposed to be afraid of Jesus. He set me free. What am I supposed to be afraid of? He says this, knowing that you were redeemed, not redeemed with corruptible things, Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. There it is. Last night, I said, Gail, I need you to make something for me. And she spent, you know, hours. It's already falling apart. I'll just use what I got. Let's say she spent hours building something for me out of Legos. And uh, she said, Don, here it is. I love you. And because I love you, I made this for you. And I just came along and said, oh, big deal. And you'd say, whoa, are you in trouble? Um, I want you to see what's on the screen. A couple weeks ago, a guy in China spent three days building that Disney character on the left from the film Zootopia out of Legos. Three days. Three days. It was valued at $15,000. $15,000. One hour after the exhibit opened, a four-year-old came in and pushed it over. And that's the picture on the right. Boom! Three days, $15,000, poof. Okay? He didn't have any respect for what that guy had worked on, did he? Fortunately, the guy was very gracious. He didn't make the parents pay for it or anything like that, but he did put the picture up because he was heartbroken. Think of a man and a wife, his husband and wife, that have a girl, young adult daughter, and she's kidnapped. And they get a ransom note, tells them that they need to supply this ransom or harm is going to come to their daughter, and she is precious to them. And so... They gather up everything they have. They don't have a lot, but they take everything they have. They sell off their cars. They mortgage their house. They, they liquidate every asset they've got in the bank and stocks. They just take it all, all this wealth that they have, such as it is, and they put it in a bag because their daughter is precious to them. They put this at the appointed time and place out there and out of the darkness with the ransom on the ground and the hostage taker in the shadows, the daughter steps out into the light. And she walks over and picks up the bag with the ransom in it. And she goes back and she looks at her parents. She smiles at them and says, got you, suckers. And she steps in the darkness and she runs away with the man that took her hostage. And you think, what a terrible thing for someone to do. And yet, every time you and I run back to our pet sin, 
and we indulge it again and again and again. We don't even try to stop. We're just like that girl. You see, the thing that you and I are supposed to fear is belittling or saying that the blood of Christ is a small thing when in fact it represented everything the Father had to give for you. We are to walk in awe of what he has done every day. And when trouble comes, (laughs) I don't need to say, oh God, why are you hurting me? Don't you love me? I don't need to do that. Why? Because every day I am in awe of what he has done for me in giving me his son who shed his blood for me. Well, finally, when everything in my life is falling apart, as a Christian I can thrive by finally giving and receiving his love in a spiritual family of born-again brothers and sisters. In verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, then this is what we do, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. We should love one another fervently with a pure heart. Why? He gives two reasons. At the very beginning in verse 22, he said it's because you've obeyed the truth. In that process, you've purified your soul. Now, what does it mean to obey the truth? He's describing the moment when you heard the gospel that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, and you put your trust in that truth. And you, in that sense, you obey it. Because to obey the gospel, the gospel makes the demand that if you're going to be saved, you have to trust Christ. And so the obedience to the message is to put faith in Christ. He says you obeyed the truth. What did that do? It purified your heart. Say, so, Pastor, I don't feel like my heart's very pure sometimes. Well, not purified in the sense of taking away all the wrong desires. We've already talked about that. But purified your heart in the sense that you have taken every other thing that you could have trusted your whole life to, and you have put it out of your heart, and you've trusted your life to one person. Your whole heart, you have trusted Christ. And he says that that was all done since you have purified yourselves and banged the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. And what he's saying is this obeying of the truth, the result is it was unto a sincere love of the brethren. That was the purpose. That's why it was, that was supposed to be an outcome of trusting Christ. And so the first reason he gives for having this fervent love is because you've obeyed the truth, and the whole purpose in obeying the truth, in part, was that you would have this sincere love for the brethren. There's a second reason he gives. Having been born again, verse 23 Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. He's talking about the Word of God. Born again. You heard the truth. Christ died for you on the cross for your sins to give you a new life, to wipe your sins away. You put your trust in it, and at that moment, the Spirit came inside you as a Christian, and He merged with your spirit, and you were born again. Your old, dead human spirit, cut off from God in spiritual darkness, was made alive by the Holy Spirit. Born again. And when God has done that inside a person, it's not something you just take by faith, although you can, but there's evidence of the new birth. 
And one of the great markers that a person, in fact, has been born again is when they love other Christians. The Bible says when someone's been born again, that change begins to bubble to the surface of their life in the form of changed attitudes, actions, and behaviors. And he says, you need to have this sincere love for the brethren, loving one another fervently. Why? Having been born again. That should be the bubble, the big bubble. John puts it this way, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When I became a Christian, these Baptist people met all the time. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. The church I kind of grew up in, we met Saturday evening, Sunday morning, whatever. We were done. Didn't even care to say hi to any of those people again for the rest of the week. When I became a Christian, I couldn't wait till the next time we got together. I couldn't wait to be around another Christian. If I met a Christian in the store, I wanted to stop. Hey, 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 good to see you. Let's talk. What's God doing in your life? And, and so it bubbles up, this new birth bubbles up, and one of the great markers that in fact you've been born again is this love for Christians, love for his people. How does that help you when you're in trouble? Well, I think it's obvious. God didn't make you to just sort of get along by yourself, did he? Church was his idea. It's not, uh, wasn't the idea of a group of men who said, hey, we got to figure out a way to big build big buildings and get people to join the church by getting wet and giving lots of money and we got this plan called the church no he invented the church the church is the body of christ when someone's born again they're put into the body of christ not a membership role they're put into the body of christ and the marker the great marker of that is this love for the brethren so when i'm in trouble the first people that i want to be with are other christians who will pray for me, who will love on me. They won't criticize me. They won't judge me. They won't reject me. They won't put me down. They will welcome me. They will receive me. When I'm in trouble, I can turn to my people, my family, my spiritual family, and they will love me. And you need that, don't you? You need that. And that's what God has called us to. But more than that, that's what he's creating in you. And you can resist it. I believe that. I believe you can resist the grace of God. I believe you can resist the work of God inside you. I think you can one day stand before Jesus with a lot of regret. I think it's possible. But man, that's not any way to live. And this is not for then. This is for now. Bottom line, am I living for that moment when I will see him seeing me? Am I living for that moment when I will see him seeing me. I don't know when it's going to happen. It might be this afternoon. It might be tonight. It might be tomorrow afternoon. You'd be in the busy and you may even be thinking while I was preaching today all the things you have to do and get done this week. And whatever moment it happens, all of a sudden there's this incredible sound, the loudest sound that you have ever heard. The Bible says it's a trumpet blast. And outside the window, wherever you are, suddenly it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. 
The Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive that will rise next. And you suddenly find yourself rising through the air. I don't know how you're going to get through the roof. Don't ask me questions like that. And as you're rising through the air, you look around you and you see other brothers and sisters that you know. And there's so-and-so. And there's somebody that, that passed away last week and they knew Jesus. And there they are. And there's somebody else that knew Christ. And there's somebody that you just spent time with praying with yesterday. And you see these people that you know. And as you're rising through the air, you realize that suddenly everybody's attention is turning to this incredibly bright light. And as you draw closer to it, you begin to see a human form. And without anyone telling you, you know who it is. And as you realize who it is, whatever you were going to do today, and whatever you were going to do this week, and whatever you were planning on the rest of the summer, I promise you, that will not be on your mind. And if you are a person who has set his or her hope fully on the grace that he will bring to you in that moment, then you know that at some point, you don't know when, but at some point, that Jesus is going to turn his eyes to you. And you have waited for this. You have longed for this. And you can't wait for his smile. And to hear his voice, well done. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If you need to trust Jesus today, the pastors and I will be down front. We'll be glad to counsel with you, share scripture with you about how a person's life has changed through a new birth and through faith in Christ. If you just need someone to pray with you, you're going through a hard time, you can come pray at these altar steps or right there in the pew where you'll be standing. You can grab one of these pastors. You don't have to even explain. You can just say, pray for me. But we want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and be our, our guide in these moments and take the truth of God, the Word of God, and apply it to our heart. I promise if you and I were living in another country where we didn't have the freedom that we have today, this would have been like life-giving food for your soul. And may God give us the capacity to grasp it and drink it deeply. And together as his people set our hope fully on the grace that he's bringing with us with him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us through the scriptures, through Peter. Guide us as we respond to you now in Jesus' name.